Thank you, worship team, and thank you, Bridge Kids, for joining us for worship. You are dismissed, and you may go to Bridge Kids. The rest of us are in Mark chapter 12. Grab a Bible, and let's find Mark chapter 12. If you've grabbed a pew Bible, or a Bridge Bible, not a pew Bible, it's page 704 or 1016. I said that for 20-some years. <laughs> Grab a pew Bible. It would be the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. On Sunday, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The road was carpeted for him with palm branches and the outer garments of the people who lined the road. As Jesus proceeded to Jerusalem, the people quoted the Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 118, 25, and 26. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the... Coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means Lord save us. They were looking for deliverance. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at the end of that Sunday, he entered the temple. But he observed it was not a house of prayer for all nations as it had once been. It had become a marketplace of sorts. The next day on Monday, Jesus uh, used a fig tree as a living parable that would be cursed, and no fruit would come from it. On that same day, he will enter the temple, and he will drive out the money changers and those who were buying and selling in the temple. This would make the religious leaders of Israel furious. On Tuesday, Jesus again goes to the temple. On this day, he's challenged by the religious leaders of Israel about his authority. By whose authority do you do these things? Like upset the tables at the temple and drive out the money changers. Our passage today takes place on Tuesday. Jesus will be dead by Friday afternoon. The context of our passage is Mark chapter 11. And we need to see this before we start verse or chapter 12. And here's what Mark chapter 11, verse 27 says. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the highest ruling group in Israel, or at least the representatives from there. Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Because they certainly had not given him that authority. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, and here's the point, they feared the people. For everyone held that John was really the prophet. So the answer, Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The key, verse 32, they feared the people more than they feared the true and living God. Now we come to the parable of the tenants. This is uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And uh, this story is told in front of the religious leaders. That's why we need the context. Uh, The audience 
will be these religious leaders. The story, verses 1 through 9, look at verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. This was a technique that he often used, a little story, um, everyday situation with an abstract reality or a spiritual truth. He began to teach them in parables, and here's the story. A man planted a vineyard. He planted grapevines because he was hoping for grapes. He put a wall around it. The wall was to protect um, this uh, vineyard and to protect from animal intruders and human intruders. And he built a watchtower. And the watchtower was so that he could, that, uh, you could see intruders coming. And it was also a place to uh, get away for safety, especially with weather. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Um, so this guy is a businessman. He's a landlord. He doesn't live there on the property. And he rents or leases this space to uh, a group of tenants. Now, this is a very common scene in Jesus' day. Very common, especially in the Galilean area, northern Israel. And remember, now he's talking in Jerusalem. Because in the Galilean area, um, there were many investors, owner, property owners, who owned the land, and they were not Jewish people. They were Gentile people who lived in another country, but they had a lot of land they possessed in northern Israel. And so they were the owners, and they would rent it out to the locals. So this is a common picture. So he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. Verse 2. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some fruit of the vineyard. Now, there would have been a contract arrangement made and uh, you know, to set up this business. Now, I own this, and you're going to take care of this. And then uh, your first payment is going to be due at the harvest. And the payment would be grapes. Because grapes are just like cash. It's just like your credit card. Um, it was... Grapes was, were worth... You could trade anywhere your grapes. And so this was the rental payment for the property. Verse 3, but they seized him... Um, the, At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them. And so this servant is seized, verse 3, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. So this servant doesn't fare well. Uh, He's beaten, and for some reason, um, he he goes back, and there's no rent money. This is not a good situation, not good for business. Verse 4, then he, the landowner, sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. So the second man gets the same kind of treatment. Not good. Verse 5. He sent still another, and that one was killed. And he sent many others. And some of them uh, they beat, and others they killed. So this is a poor business venture. The landowner sends many servants, one after another. The tenants beat and kill these servants. Now... If you catch this in the story, the landowner seems a little bit overly patient and overly kind. And this is really not how to do a successful business. Finally, verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. So in good faith, he decides to send his 
beloved son. He expects his tenants to treat the son with respect, the same kind of respect that they would give him as the landowner. Verse 7, we see that the tenants are plotting together. The tenants said to one another, as they're scheming, this is the heir. Hmm. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So there was a, a common law during the day in Israel that if the owner of the property dies and there are no heirs left, then whoever is residing on the property may claim the property legally. And so in their scheming, whether they, know, whether they think for some reason that the owner of the land is dead or whatever happens, if the, if the heir is dead, soon uh, they may hope that the property will end up to them. I don't know why they're not thinking about the possibility of consequences. Verse 8, so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard, treating him very poorly. They kill him, and then they dishonor his body by throwing it out of the vineyard. Verse 9, what then, this is what the story is about, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus asked this question. That's what the story is about, the answer to this question. And Jesus doesn't wait for their answer. Jesus answers the question himself. He, he will come, the owner will come, and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Um, he's going to bring justice finally to those tenants who were responsible for the failures of their agreement. So let's talk about the interpretation. What is this story about? This is a parable. What is the meaning of this story? Well, some things are pretty obvious, uh, and some may not be. First of all, the owner is God. The owner is God. He's the landowner in this story. He is the one who is too patient and too kind sometimes. The vineyard is Israel. God created Israel, the nation. God provided for her God gave her a land. God gathered her together and protected her. God gave her all that she needed to be successful. This imagery goes back to the Old Testament, eight centuries earlier in Isaiah chapter 5. So Isaiah the prophet says, I sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. By the way, this is not a romance, so stay with it. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built... Now, does this sound a little bit familiar? Think about the audience. Slowly, the audience is going to catch on to this story. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press as well. Next slide. Excuse me. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah. So this is the prophet speaking now. He's told us a little vineyard story. Now here's the real deal. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have, not, that I have done for it? Next slide. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge protection, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. And so invaders want to come in, they'll be free to enter. 
I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Last slide. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation Israel. You want an interpretation? There's the vineyard. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bludgeon for righteousness, but heard the cries of distress. God was looking for fruit. He, this was what he wanted for his investment. He wanted his people to bear fruit. He wanted his people to be people who were just, pursuing justice and fairness for all people. He wanted his people to be pursuing righteousness. He was looking for the fruit of repentance, okay? That's the basis of this whole parable. Now, imagine you're in the audience and you know the Old Testament pretty well. This is starting to sink in. This makes me uncomfortable if you're sitting there. So, uh, back to the interpretation. Who are the tenets? The tenets are the religious leaders. They are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and the scribes and the elders of Israel. They are the ones that God has negotiated with a responsibility, an agreement. It's called the Old Covenant, by the way. And they have a responsibility to lead Israel. They have a responsibility for the spiritual welfare and the spiritual well-being of this nation. And uh, so they are the tenants. The fruit is about obedience, the fruit of repentance, justice, righteousness, fear of the Lord, and compassion. And there would be others. Uh, God wanted his people to more and more take on his character and uh, to value the things that he values. God was looking for hearts to grow and become more like him. He had created his people in his image. And his desire was that his image be reflected in them more and more. To show th- things like love and kindness and forgiveness and to be righteous and fair. The servants in this story, the servants are the prophets of Israel. The landowner had sent his servants, just as God had sent his prophets to Israel, the vineyard. Jeremiah describes this in the Old century, in the uh, Old uh, Testament, about eight centuries uh, before the birth of Christ in Jeremiah 7. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, so there's a little tracing of history. 1446 B.C. is about when Israel left Egypt after the Ten Commandments. Day after day, and again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. The prophets are often described as servants of God, servants of the true and living God. And God sent them to his people to wake them up, uh, to hold them accountable to the law of God in the Old Testament. And that was the role of the prophet. Um, God made this covenant with, with his people. They had these laws. Their, their job was to follow the laws of God. And whenever they got out of line, God sent a prophet. Just to remind them, get their attention, wake up Israel. And he would call them back. And he would specifically call out their sins and what they needed to do to change. 
Verse 26, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. Uh, also, Nehemiah. Next, next slide. Nehemiah says this in chapter 9. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you, referring to God. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets. Just like the tenants in the vineyard killed the servants of the landowner, Israel killed the prophets of God who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemy. So you delivered them. And this is is the patience of God with Israel. Verse 27. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. There were consequences. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. Next slide. From heaven you heard them, and your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. So God was patient. He gave them consequences. When they humbled themselves, he rescued them. Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. So their enemies ruled over them, just like Rome is ruling over Israel in the first century. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and your compassion. You delivered them time after time. God is so patient with his people. He is so patient. God is patient with you and me. Back to the interpretation. The Son, getting pretty obvious. The Son is Jesus, the Son of God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave us one and only Son. This is the one and only Son of the landowner that is sent and his life is taken. There's a little bit of a prediction here that Jesus is making. Jesus came to his own people. He came to Israel. They killed the prophets. Now they're going to kill the Son. John chapter 1, verse 11 says this. This is how John opens in the first chapter. He, that is Jesus, came to that which was his own, his own people, the nation Israel, but his own did not receive him. He wasn't welcome there. That's what the story of John is about. Then the question comes in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Back to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Now, I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. I'm going to take away this protection, this fence, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall. It will be trampled. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down in 70 A.D., by the way. And I mentioned last week the temple was, every stone of the temple was overturned and drugged to uh, the Kedron Valley and placed in a dump. Verse 6, I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. Verse 7, I will command the clouds not to rain on the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation Israel. It's very clear that there was a judgment pronounced against Israel, against uh, the vineyard. So what will the owner do? He will come and he will kill those tenants, verse 9, and he will give the vineyard to others. And here's what God is saying. Israel, I am going to remove you from your place. 
you will no longer represent me. I'm going to give your responsibility to someone else. And God did exactly that. All of these leaders alive in 70 AD were put to death. And this responsibility was handed over to another group to lead God's people. And those who were followers of Jesus will become the church. And they will become God's representatives on earth. And it will be a new agreement, a new covenant. Prophecy verses 10 and 11. Mark chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? This was a common way Jesus addressed the leaders who were experts in the Old Testament law. Jesus now quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. He said, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders are Israel's leaders. The stone is Jesus. Verse 11, The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This passage, Psalm 118, was written a thousand years before Jesus. And now it is going to be fulfilled. The leadership of Israel will reject Jesus, the chief cornerstone of this building God is building. And the Lord has done this. It was no surprise from the, it, it had always been God's plan that there was going to be a new building with a new cornerstone. It was not a fluke. The early Christian church understood this in Acts chapter 4, verses uh, 10 and 11. Peter is preaching, and they've just healed the blind man. Verse 10, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He wasn't blind, he was lame. And he was healed in Acts chapter 4. Jesus is... The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone under the power of the Holy Spirit and the enabling of the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter proclaims the fulfillment of uh, this Psalm 118 passage. Jesus is the cornerstone. The Apostle Paul picks up this imagery in Ephesians chapter 2, a passage that we've referred to many times. Consequently, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church. He's, he's teaching the church at Ephesus, and this applies to us. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So there's this new building. It is going to be a holy temple, and it's not going to be a physical structure. It's going to be a spiritual structure, and it includes people. The Holy Spirit is going to live in this new temple. And every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, there is a new stone added to the temple. And the, and the building continues to grow. And as somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ today, there will be a new stone added to this building. Verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises and becomes a holy temple in the Lord. This new structure, but it's spiritual. Verse 22, and in him you are too being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Jesus is the cornerstone. And um, it was the stone the builders rejected. Verse 12, the response 
Next slide, I think, I hope. Nope. There we go. You'll have to go back to the application after 12. Verse 12. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the peril against, parable against them. Smart people. They get it. Some of them know Isaiah chapter 5. They knew it was about them. But they were what? Afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. They feared the people more than they feared the true and living God. Application. Sometimes God's people fear what others think more than they fear the Lord. That was a problem of the first century leaders. One problem they had. They had several things. Sometimes you and I fear what others, others think more than we fear what God thinks. Um, it's easy to be influenced by our friends. What do our friends think about what we should do or what we, how we should dress or how we should behave? How we should speak? Can we say, no, I choose not to do that? Does your family sway you, have more influence in your life than God does? How about your coworkers? Sometimes people make fun of Christian things. Are you okay to say, I don't appreciate that? I don't value that. Uh, that's dishonoring to the God I serve. Do you remain silent? Do you laugh with your co-workers or friends? Sometimes we fear people more than we fear what God says. Uh, Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. There's a danger in the fear of people. Verse Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, wis- of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, putting God first and fearing how he views rightness. Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord first. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, the source of life, life giving ongoing, day after day after day, turning a person from the snares of death, separation from God, not just eternal, but day after day, turning from sin. Another application that's not written up here is that God is still looking for spiritual fruit, just like he was with Israel. You can write down Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He's still looking for us to become more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. He's looking for us to grow and to change, to become more loving, more patient, more joyful, kinder. Another application would be God is extremely patient with the failures of his people, but his patience will run out. That applies to you and to I. Now, if you're saved from the penalty of your sin, you're always going to be saved from the penalty of your sin, but there can be consequences in this life for disregarding God. Everything from physical to death, physical death. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 5. 
Let's go on to the last part of the passage this morning. Um, Chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. The tax question. This is about tenants and taxes. The tax question. In verse 13, we see the entrapment plan. Look at 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Key word there. Their purpose was to catch him. They wanted to entrap him. Interesting thing about the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees are the religious conservatives. They are ultra-conservative. They are even legalistic. Always about doing the right thing and having the right law at the right time and looking good while they do it. The Herodians were Jewish people, but they were fans of Herod. They were connected politically to Herod. And they supported the Roman Empire because Herod wouldn't exist without the Roman Empire. So they were sort of friends with the Roman Empire. So these groups don't normally get along, but they unite together. That's kind of the interesting thing about the the whole thing about uh, the crucifixion of Jesus is all these parties in Israel come together for one purpose, and that's to crucify Jesus. Otherwise, they pretty much can't get along. So this is kind of a spy mission. They've come to catch Jesus in his words. And verses uh, 14, uh, the words of flattery, look at verse 14. They came to him and said, this group of religious leaders, teacher. We know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You know what? That's absolutely true. That was absolutely true of Jesus. That's not what they thought. This is kind of tongue-in-cheek. They're disingenuous about this whole thing. Verse, uh, last part of 14, the trick question, 14c. Here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? It's like a yes-no question. Yes, you're in trouble. No, you're in trouble. That's the purpose of the question. They believe that they have skillfully asked Jesus a question that will put him in a great dilemma. The imperial tax was a poll tax. One denarius paid for every male uh, in Israel. It was, it was a census tax to be paid every year. Uh, if Jesus says, pay the tax, um, he's going to be inconsistent with all the views of the religious leaders of Israel because they hate the tax. They hate that there's an outside intruder in their land ruling over them. And they hate that Caesar expects so much from them. Caesar expects things that only the true and living God should have. So if Jesus says, pay it, he's going to anger the Jewish leaders. But if he says, don't pay it, he's going to bring alarm to to Rome, and, and Rome is going to come and arrest him for insurrection. So they think whatever he says, it's going to be good. Verse 15, also, the hypocrisy exposed. Verse, Look at... Uh, Verse 15, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So the denarius was a Roman coin. Uh, By the way, Jesus didn't have one. And uh, so he has to ask for it. Jesus is not fooled by their flattery. Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. It's pretty common for Jesus. And this is the counter question, verse 16. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? And whose inscription? Caesar's, 
they replied, which was a good answer because Caesar's head was on one side and on the other side was Caesar sitting on a throne. And on the front side, um, there was this inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. They're making uh, Caesar a son of God here. That was the inscription. And on the other side, the chief priest. He was sitting on a throne, and he was a high priest. He was a chief priest. Um, and by the way, Jesus didn't get all flabbergasted about this. We would have Christians arguing about this forever because Caesar was described as God. Um, the answer comes in verse 17. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That's pretty simple. Give back to Caesar what is his and give back to God what is his. And um, he's saying, and, th- and they were amazed at him. You know, he's kind of got them now. How, how can they deal with this? Because he's right. And give back to Caesar. The coin belongs to Caesar. The coin has his inscription and his picture on it. And they have the coin because Rome is in charge and because Rome has built roads and provide armies and provided armies and safety and protection for this nation as well as many other nations. And tax is a normal way that uh, those things are maintained. And so Caesar wanted a denarius once a year from every uh, male. So... Um, Jesus says, give it to him. It's his. Doesn't belong to God. Give it to him. So application here. Pay the taxes that you owe. It's pretty simple. Christians, pay the taxes that you owe. Pay everything you owe. Don't pay more than you owe. Be totally honest. Be a person of integrity with your taxes. Honor Jesus by paying your taxes. Um, Romans 13, 6 and 7. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, but our government's not moral, or our government's not wise, or our our government is foolish. There's probably no more foolish government than this one. Nero was the emperor of Rome when Paul wrote this. And yet, God says to Christians, obey your government, pay your taxes, be a person of integrity, be above reproach when it comes to your taxes, be a good steward, don't pay more than you should. If the law says you can, if, if there's uh, ways that you can limit your taxes, please do that. But pay what you do owe. The second part, give to God what is God's. Application, Jesus gave his body for you. You give your body back to him. Give to God what is God's. There are some things that belong to God. Honor, glory, praise, worship. They belong to God. They don't belong to Caesar. So 
Jesus isn't acknowledging that Caesar deserves to be called the son of God. He's saying Caesar deserves to be paid taxes. Only God deserves worship. And one of the most logical things, Jesus gave his body for you, you give your body back to him. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He says, Don't you know that? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, he's talking about immorality. He's talking about sexual immorality in the context of 1 Corinthians 6. The whole idea is your body belongs to God. If you are a follower of Christ, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins, and he purchased you, and you belong to him, and your body belongs to him. And he tells us to honor God with our bodies, to treat our bodies with respect, not to use it for immorality. Don't use your body to be lazy or slothful. Don't let your body become the most important thing. You know, sometimes we hate our bodies and we're worried about our looks and it becomes like the most important thing. And it's not. Um, Don't let your stomach rule your life. It's not the most important thing. Sometimes we desire, desire, desire more comfort from food than we do from God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... What's God's mercy? Well, it's the first 11 chapters of the book of Roman. It talks about the death of Christ and the implications of the death of Christ for the non-Christian, for the Jewish person, for the religious person, and for the nation Israel. That's God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. You want to know what God's will is for your life? It is for you to give yourself to God totally. Give your body back to God and everything that's in your body, your mind and your heart and your spirit and your emotions, your thoughts. And it's really about lordship. Jesus is Lord and I am not. And a response back to God is... Give yourself to him. Offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they did dead sacrifices. Put them on the altar, burned them with fire. And God wants a living sacrifice. It's often been said the problem with that is we crawl off the altar. We don't stay there. But you know what? If you crawl off the altar, just crawl back on and say, God, here I am. I want to I be yours I want, I want to live for you. I want Jesus to be Lord, and I want to be the servant. So when you uh, understand what Jesus has done for you, it's just reasonable and logical to give yourself back to him.